News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, today we are going to get a lot of information about money laundering in this province, or are we? The B.C. government is set to release the final report from the Commission of Inquiry into Money Laundering this morning, and then into the afternoon we'll get more details and we'll hear from Attorney General David Eby about that. So this report is being released publicly. It's almost 2,000 pages but will we learn anything? Will the fingers be pointed? Because I feel like that's what people have always wanted to know, right? Is how did this happen in our province? Well, one person who has been covering it extensively from the very beginning is our next guest. That's Sam Cooper, investigative journalist for Global News. Good morning, Sam. Good morning, Simi. Sam, we've been waiting for this for so long, and I know that David Eby has said that, you know what, people inevitably will be disappointed, but what do you think is going to happen here? Well, uh, in, in 1,800 pages of a report, it's, it's hard uh, right now to see exactly what it's going to say. But I can tell you, you know, from covering this for over two years, what I heard was that uh, high officials in government, casino bosses, uh, RCMP bosses were told over and over again that international crime had infiltrated BC casinos, were working directly with staff in some cases. We heard casino uh, high limit rooms were specifically built for organized crime. This was known <laughs> for international gamblers to come in and do what became known as Vancouver model money laundering. So the big question uh, for Commissioner Cullen, I think, was given this evidence, you're right. Can he point specifically at uh, individuals in government, casino bosses, uh, casino staff, and police for failing to stop this after more than 20 years of warnings when this grew to a $200 million estimated per year money laundering machine? And uh, I'm like you. I don't know if uh, we, the people will be satisfied uh, and, and hear that people uh, in government were corrupted and turned a blind eye just for the sake of revenue and that those people will be held accountable, such as, you know, criminal investigations being launched. But I can say with a lot of certainty, I believe Commissioner Cullen grasped the issues and I, I, I think it's a slam dunk to say that he will report that massive money laundering infiltrated, uh, especially BC casinos, and, uh, and people omitted to, to take action against it. Uh, what recommendations come from that? That's just a, a giant mm-hmm. unknown right now. And I know you listened to so much of that testimony. Did you hear the why? Like, did you, were you able to hear from any of that testimony, okay, this person was allowing this to happen or this person was allowing this to happen? I was. Uh, I, I was convinced that there was powerful allegations against certain officials. One name that came up a lot was the former uh, powerful gaming minister, Rich Coleman. We heard a number of uh, scenarios where his subordinates testified that they directly warned Mr. Coleman, whether they're, we're talking about police officers or gaming investigators, that uh, they told him organized crime is laundering huge mo- uh, money in the casinos. It's believed to be drug cash. You need to do something. And uh, we heard the evidence that Mr. Coleman really didn't do anything. And uh, beyond that, he came out and slammed a, a police whistleblower for, for 
suggesting publicly this was happening. Mr. Coleman says he did nothing wrong. I'll be very interested to see Commissioner uh, Cullen's take on that. Other things that I heard that, you know, didn't really come out in testimony but came out in documents and blew my mind was that the RCMP said in 2011 specific casinos were knowingly using international gamblers as willing pawns in money laundering and that they had even supersized and built these private high-limit gambling salons where, you know, people could bet up to uh, $100,000 per hand, could carry in suitcases of cash. These were built with specific foreign gamblers in mind. So what do I take from that? There was was nothing unwitting. This was not an accident. Uh, The government casinos sought to maximize uh, revenue that they knew was coming from corrupted sources abroad. So of all the things that you heard then, you mentioned a few things there, but were the things that even you didn't know about, Sam, things that surprised you when you heard it? That, that was the, what, probably the, the primary one, was that these casinos, which includes private business operators working with government officials, were purpose-built to launder Vancouver model-style money. Uh, the RCMP knew that this money was being cycled back to Hong Kong and then coming back uh, in, in, into Canadian, big five Canadian banks in wire transfers. So people think a lot of, that this is just, you know, bags of cash. No, Simi, I heard and learned uh, in studies sort of buried in the commission that this was money international flowing into Canadian banks. So I'll be very interested to see if Commissioner Cullen digs into that issue because that is a, a national financial security issue which has huge ramifications uh i also learned you know uh, uh, so much but what look the very biggest by uh, scale uh vip gambler that is the top driver of revenue in bc casinos in 2015 was a man from china that was known to be a suspected fentanyl importer by the canada border services agency uh the government knew this and the man really was not stopped and it just it it cascades down from that all the way corruption top to the bottom is some of the evidence that i heard and uh, read and that really illustrates it right there, right? The way you just described it, because you're talking about somebody who is allegedly importing fentanyl and you look at where we are with the opioid crisis. Like this, this, this wasn't 10 years ago. We're still feeling the effects, aren't we, Sam? We're still feeling effects, uh, Simi. Uh, the, you know, the, uh, as you know, the, the overdose epidemic is, is growing, we believe, right now. Uh, the money laundering in real estate is, is, is still happening at a large scale. These international criminal networks are, are so fluid and adaptable. And so I'll be very interested to hear from Minister Eby. To, uh, you know, we've heard a lot from him that uh, the government cracked down on cash in around 2018, but uh, their reports came out uh, that these uh, gamblers were finding ways around that after that action was taken by Minister Eby. So it's going to be very interesting, uh, I think, to see if the government is trying to spin, uh, you know, that this was solved, or if Commissioner Cullen comes out and says, look, this is not just a BC problem, this is a national problem, and we need to do something at the federal level. He's been saying that for a while, though, hasn't he? Like, he's been calling on the federal government to help out, which brings the question, like, has anything changed? Are we cracking down on this? You're right. Um, Minister Eby has been asking for federal assistance for a long time, and he's right in that. Uh, Simi, I can tell you, uh, I'm based in Ottawa reporting now. 
Already, I'm hearing from certain MPs that they want to see a national money laundering inquiry just based on uh, what they think is going to come out of the Cullen Commission. So, uh, and, you know, from what I've seen, I would agree with that. Has anything really changed? Uh, maybe at the margins, uh, you know, of course, uh, we've, we've established that cash is down in the BC casinos, but we've also established that the organized crime group shifted their activity to Ontario casinos and underground casinos. So I don't think much has changed. And uh, you said it best, the, ep- the fentanyl overdose epidemic continues, death counts are rising. And that just tells you that uh, at a lot of levels, uh, there needs to be a lot of action. Okay, and you're saying still more action because we haven't like we have an inquiry now, so we that's pretty much a roadmap, right, for us to say we know this has happened and we have to fix it. It's a roadmap, and uh, I'll, I'll be digging into that report today to see if there are specific recommendations uh, that can change things like the RCMP. Can it be turned into a better international force? Can Canada's Security Intelligence Agency uh, kick in? Because really, Simi, they know so much about these international crime groups that are at the root of the problem, but these are all very naughty fixes because uh, we're, we're, the Canadian legal system, I think it came out in the inquiry and outside the inquiry, is not very conducive to stopping international crime. So uh, the devil will be in the details. All right. Well, I look forward to hearing your breakdown or reading your breakdown of it. Sam, thank you so much. Thanks, Simi. That's Sam Cooper, investigative journalist for Global News. Now, he will, of course, be closely following the release of the report into the Cullen Commission's inquiry on money laundering. That's being released uh, this morning around 11.30, and then there will be a press conference with David Eby, the Attorney General, I think at 1.30 this afternoon. We're going to break all of that down for you, of course, but just keep it tuned in here for the latest. It's a big report, something like 1,800 pages, so there'll be a lot of reading, and of course, there'll be a lot of detail so there's a lot to break down. This is Mornings with Simi. Time for us to check in with our Raji Sohal this morning. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. You know that I do not have a dog, but yet. I want a dog. My, yet. yet, exactly. My kids really want a dog. And I've wanted one for about 10 years. And it started when my husband and I took a trip to Brazil. We hung out with friends who had a whippet. You know, these uh, kind of smaller yes. sized greyhounds. They're gorgeous dogs. And then while we were staying with them in Sao Paulo, they acquired another whippet. But this one was crazy. It was unruly. It slept uh, like on the owner's face. And they and the owners couldn't handle it anymore. And <laughs> That's so actually kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> they took the dog in and we watched them train this dog within a like literally a few days it was like four or five days and they whipped it into shape and gave it the same kind of personality that their other whip already had and we were like wow these dogs are incredible they are so obedient if trained properly and then they're you know uh, they move a lot they run really fast at the beach or outside but inside they acted like cats so we were sold Okay. Then we were like, okay, maybe we wait to have kids first. Now we have kids and we're like, oh shoot, these are a lot of work. How are we going to handle a dog? But we're still in the market. We want a dog. And now we're like, okay, what kind of dog to get? So anytime there's news about like dog breeds, I am paying extra attention in order to learn from them. And now this study has come out about bulldogs. And we've seen similar studies in the last several years about bulldog health. Well, vets are actually urging people not to buy bulldogs right now because the French bulldog and the pug 
uh, have a lot of breeding issues. They have a lot of health risks more so than other dogs. So they can actually, the way that they are bred is causing a lifetime of suffering for them. These are the dogs that have like bulging eyes. They're kind of flat faced. Uh, you know, a lot of my friends bought them about 10 or 15 years ago because of, this is so embarrassing, but because of the street cred they provided, like they were the hippest no, dogs that you could no. parade around the neighborhood. Like they have that no. wobbly gait. Yeah. And people would put these handkerchiefs around their necks. Yeah, I've seen that. And be like, look <laughs> at my little sidekick. And these dogs, they like, they cough and sniffle and, and they struggle to breathe. And a couple of my friends, their dogs had such, their bulldogs had such poor health that uh, they actually had GoFundMe campaigns. And I'm like, your GoFundMe campaign to get your dog some help at the vet. All this could have just been, oh boy. I mean, it's all unnecessary. We could have avoided all of this had you just gotten a dog instead that has better chances at survival. That's crazy. And I know we, we recently spoke to somebody who had done research. I think he was from the UK. It was a professor into how long your dog lives. And I remember very specifically that he said that the bulldog like and the pugs, like the ones that are bred to be these kind of designer dogs are the ones that like their life will be the shortest. And so you need to think about that when you're picking your dog. For sure. And yet the appeal is so strong for people about how it looks like how this cute, I mean, cute slash ugly, because I think they look horrific. Uh, but that's kind of the appeal of them. And they, there are so many social media accounts that people have for, for their dogs, right? For their pets. But the amount that I see for this kind of dog in particular, for the French bulldog especially, is insane. People love the look of these dogs and nothing else about them because they're just, a, they bring a host of problems. Yeah, I think they've just become such an accessory, particularly in Metro Vancouver. You know, how people always say peop that, oh, Vancouverites, they're not very friendly. It's so hard to make friends here if you move here. Well, the answer to that is to buy a dog. Because if you have a dog, people are way more sociable <laughs> towards you because you talk about the dog and you run into people and you smile and the dogs play together. I think that's the currency of sociability in Metro Vancouver is to have a dog. I think you are on to something. And I actually, so we don't have a dog, like I said, but we love other people's dogs. So we will stop That's anybody, right. no matter what they look like or how standoffish they themselves seem. If we like their dog, we're going to stop to chat and hopefully pet the dog. Yeah. And you know what? And if you, most people who have a dog are quite pleased if you recognize their dog and you want, we have a, a red fox Labrador and, you know, he's a year and a half old. That guy is the star of the neighborhood. Like I can't I can't walk him without people wanting to stop and chat with him. So that's how I've gotten to know so many people in the neighborhood is because of him. So if you wonder why Vancouverites are standoffish, I say get a dog. Maybe just not one of these designer dogs you're talking about, but a dog. Roger, yeah. you gotta get, get one. Get a dog. Break the ice with a dog. That's <laughs> right. Break the ice with the dog. Thank you for that. Thanks. This is Mornings with Simi. How do you feel about a shorter work week? I'm not talking about the work 10 hours a day and then, you know, you essentially did work your work week, but you just get another day off. No, no, we're talking about an actual shorter work week. This is something that some companies in the United Kingdom are actually testing out right now. And they're using thousands of workers from different sectors to do it. And they want to know, 
are employees more productive in a four-day work week system? Now, you may think, oh, well, this will never work, right? I mean, we can't be more productive and, you know, if we work eight hours a day for four days a week instead of five. But remember, a six-day work week used to be the norm, and a five-day work week was thought to be quite revolutionary back in the day. So let's talk about this. Is this something that could catch on? Amanda Watson is with us now, an SFU sociology and anthropology lecturer who specializes in labor and capitalism. Amanda, thank you for being here. Hi, good morning, Sammy. Great to, ha- great to be here. What are some of the positives about a, a shorter work week? Well, studies from companies that are doing this around the world are already showing happiness and um, health in their in their employees, but also they're seeming that they can maintain productivity while also recruiting and retaining. And so I'm thinking about the Canadian context here. And if it's true that there are a million job vacancies right now, it makes sense that companies are thinking about how they can recruit workers and attract workers with benefits and maybe shorter hours for the same pay. Okay, I guess the big question here, though, is, Amanda, are there benefits to the employer for doing this? Well, first of all, retention and recruitment is, is, is a problem right now, which I think is really exciting from a worker perspective, because finally the ball is in our court, I think. And the, the challenge is when workers don't see each other as on the same team. So often what I hear about is like across sectors, like how are we going to incentivize you know, those frontline workers and those companies that need businesses open every day, or even the high value work like law firms when people seem to enjoy working 70 hours a week and they're certainly valued and, and, and paid accordingly. Um, but I think actually this is an opportunity to think about these kind of cleavages in the workforce as not um, inevitable. And if COVID taught us anything, what we think about as impossible to change is actually able to change quite quickly. Okay, so what? tell me about this experiment that's going on in the UK. You said it's how, like other companies all over the world are trying this. So what is their incentive in trying this? Well, the exciting thing about what's happening in the UK is that they're looking across sectors. And so there's a fish and chips restaurant that signed up. There are thousands of companies, thousands of, of, of or sorry, 80 companies, thousands of workers. And that is going to bring us new results. So then we'll be able to see what are the challenges when it's a company that, um, you know, like may lose productivity, are some companies in some industries really vulnerable to not maintaining their profit model? And that's a reasonable thing to need to test. So it's not guaranteed that every company can just jump into this, right? I think most of us think about the barriers first and even think about our own jobs and think like, oh my gosh, well, I'm on the air five days a week, so what happens then? But the the main um, thing that I'm like teaching my students is let's come into these questions thinking about these as challenges when we want humans to be happier and work less, like we know we have a problem of worker burnout and depression and ill health and the motherhood penalty and inequities because some people are wage poor and time poor. So let's ask the questions about the barriers in an optimistic way with an aim to fix them. Right. It it is really about the mindset though, isn't it, Amanda? Because you said it yourself, there are some jobs that we think, wow, that person's so good at their job because look how hard they're working. Look how many hours in a week they're working. We learned this from such a young age here in Canada, right? In this capitalist culture, like it's part of our identities. In fact, I have taught this and also struggled with this on the inside. Like I don't want to be seen to be leaving early or taking all of my vacation. You know, we identify so much with that productivity. It's how we kind of identify our own self-worth. So I'm really like encouraging the shift in mindset so that we might see worker solidarity. But this is going to be a lifetime of unlearning for some of us who have grown up like in the 80s and 90s 
through, you know, transnational competition and learned that we need to be these sort of bots at work to be valued. Yeah, that's my generation right there. You it's just named it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is it. Is it though the mindset, like we've done this before, right? And I was thinking, saying earlier that like there used to be a six day work week and that was the norm and going down to five was a big deal. Right. The, the important thing to remember about 100 years ago that we often forget when we're talking about hours worked is that um, Standards Act was really uh, about the male breadwinner model of the welfare state. And so certainly there were women working, especially uh, poor families and like immigrant families here in Canada often had dual earning parents or like a family business. But the idea that a worker could work like 40 hours a week and everything over that would be overtime implied that somebody was keeping the house. And we have a different situation now. <laughs> now we have inflation. We have families needing even their teenagers to contribute to the mortgage. And so we need to think like we have become so much more productive. We have home appliances. You know, it's not the 1930s. So how can we reward ourselves with becoming more efficient in a time when inflation rates are 6.5%? We cannot allow wages to stagnate. We actually need our wages to grow. So we need to think creatively in order to maintain our national competition as well. Right. But would this work across every industry, though? I don't think in our current legislative landscape it would. And I think that is what will be the, that'll be the main like argument against it. It'll, it'll drum up a lot of cynicism in a lot of us, I think, because the hurdles seem so enormous that it's hard to imagine. But one of the things I'm optimistic about is looking at studies out of New Zealand and Iceland and Spain and hopefully soon the UK that show what is saved economically that we might as workers not imagine. So we can think about the climate footprint that, of course, like if fewer people are commuting, that's great. And for every hour reduced, there's like fewer single-use plastics out there in the world. But also traffic congestion is really hard on the economy. And so what, we, what might we gain? What might we gain economically that could be reinvested in certain industries? We've subsidized industries before. Does this amount to a subsidy for some businesses that we want to stay open seven days a week, for example? We just have to brainstorm and be brave about it. Right. So how did they get, approach this then in the UK where they've got all these companies signing on to try this? And is this something that might work here? I actually don't know the details of that. And I think that it's partly be like, you know, it will come out in the research like after the pilot. Um, but I think so when we're thinking about the UK, we need to think also about little things like labor union culture. And so if we think back in Canada, OK, we are a resource economy in many provinces, right, in like many parts of this country. And we also have a big divide between the kinds of work that goes on in urban centers like hospitality in Vancouver. Right. Um, and also like that, that doesn't exist in the same way in rural um, places. And so I would love to see us take on provincial level or national level pilots here considering the terrain, because something that works for the UK will not work here, but we shouldn't be discouraged when we see their results and think, oh, well, that's not applicable here. So we need to like look at what's going on elsewhere. Look at the companies, you know, in Toronto and Vancouver who are already doing this, who are sort of the early adopters and think what can be gleaned. Look at the research around Canada. All right. It's such an interesting concept. Amanda, thank you for your time. Thanks very much for having me. It's Amanda Watson, SFU Sociology and Anthropology Lecturer who specializes in labor and capitalism, talking about this experiment in the UK that dozens of companies have signed on for, affecting thousands of workers, where they're testing a shorter work week and not having the employers still do the 40 hours spaced out over four days, but actually working the fewer hours of a four-day work week to see how this benefits both the employer and the employee. Do you think this could work here? Let me know. Simi at cknw.com. You can also call our buzz line 604-331-2899. And in fact, we have people who have thoughts on this.
Hi there. Just like to comment with regards to a four-day work week. Absolutely, I think that'd be a great idea. Work-life balance is very important, especially nowadays. Yes, in the past we used to work six days a week and twelve hours a day, and work our lives away, and never really had much of a family life. But nowadays, people are more driven to family life. They want their time off. They want to enjoy their time and balance life, work balance. And absolutely, and I'd have no problem going to ten-hour shifts and doing four days a week. That's no problem at all. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, this is such an interesting story, this next one. It's about a deal that has been reached. You probably saw this. Canada and Denmark have come to an agreement about what to do with a 1.3 square kilometer island in the Arctic. Yeah, just a kind of barren island in the Arctic that apparently we have been arguing with Denmark over for the last 50 years or so. But now we've come to an official agreement. And what is What was the big settlement here? Well, apparently we're going to just divide it. We're going to split it in half, half to Canada, half to Denmark. So what is so significant about this? Well, that's what our next guest is going to talk to us about. Michael Byers is with us now, political science professor and Canada research chair at the University of British Columbia. Michael, thanks so much for being here. It's great to be here. Thank you. You've been talking about this for a long time. Why do you think this is so significant? Well, it's uh, significant because it uh, it's an opportunity for Canada and Denmark to say to the rest of the world, look, this is how responsible countries resolve their territorial disputes. We do it peacefully. We do it through negotiations. And of course, this is at a time where you know, Russia has invaded Ukraine, where uh, China is causing problems in the South China Sea. Um, and so it's, a, it's an important moment to make a small uh, but positive statement. And why were we fighting over this with Denmark? What was so important and significant about this island? Well, nothing was significant about it. In fact, we didn't even know we had a dispute until we were negotiating the maritime boundary between Greenland and Canada back in 1973 and discovered this uh, small rocky island exactly halfway um, between Canada and Greenland and realized we had a, a territorial dispute And it would have been solved in just a year or two, except politicians in Canada and Denmark realized that it was convenient to have an Arctic sovereignty dispute with a close NATO ally with no prospect of armed conflict. And I actually went back and tracked when Canadian officials visited the island, and it was always shortly before Canadian elections. And Danish officials would always visit shortly before Danish elections. So it became a useful political football. And it was only, I think, Russia's invasion of Ukraine that really pushed this forward as something that needed to be sorted out now. So you think that kind of made people realize, well, this is this is a dumb game we're playing here. Like, we don't need to play this game. Exactly. And I, I think it also helped that, you know, Justin Trudeau in his time as prime minister has not made Arctic sovereignty part of his brand in the same way that former prime ministers like Stephen Harper did. Right, because once again, right, I guess we realize the high stakes, right, in in having those kinds of that kind of talk out there. Yeah, and and again, you know, Denmark is a close NATO ally. It's also a partner in the Canada European Union Free Trade Agreement. Uh, I sometimes joke that Canada imports more Lego blocks from Denmark than any other country. We're really close, and so it was kind of silly and counterproductive to have this dispute. And, uh, um, you know, it's a really good thing that we finally sat down and, and drew a line. 
You know, what's also interesting about this, Michael, I find is that this is getting a lot of attention. Like there are headlines all over the world about the fact that Canada and Denmark have settled this dispute. So you're right. It does seem like other countries have have noticed this and paid attention. Yeah, I mean, there's also great stories associated with it. So every time that Danish officials would go to the island, they'd leave a bottle of Danish schnapps in the rocky cairn on top of the island so that when the Canadians came a year or two later, they could drink the schnapps and leave behind a bottle of Canadian club whiskey. It became known as the Whiskey War because everyone knew it was a bit of a joke. Okay, so the world should pay attention to this. Does Canada have any other disputes like this? Um, Well, we... uh, we we have another small part of Europe close to our shores, uh, Saint Pierre and Miquelon, two French islands just off of Newfoundland. But we resolved the dispute there, which was a maritime boundary dispute back in 1992, and we have a, an ongoing dispute with the United States about the legal status of the Northwest Passage. And, and so, who knows? Maybe the Canadian legal team at Global Affairs Canada that negotiated this Hans Island deal can now move on to the much more important and much more difficult Northwest Passage dispute. One would hope. All right, thank you so much for talking to us about it. Always a pleasure. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Yes, it is time for Keep It Local. This is our BC Farming series. We're trying to highlight local farms around the province. And, you know, when we originally thought about doing this, it was to help a lot of farms out given the very tough year they'd had, whether it was wildfires, the heat dome, or flooding. And so for that, we also need your help because we would love to highlight the farms maybe that you have a special connection with it. You've gone somewhere. Maybe you've gone there for years. You think they've got great, you know, great produce, a great story. Tell us about it so we can share that with everybody else and maybe give them a little bit of a boost too. So just email me, simi at cknw.com. In fact, that's how we came to know about our guests today. Today's farm that we're going to be talking about is Berry Bounty Farms. I had a couple different people actually email me about Berry Bounty Farms. So we thought, let's find out more. Brian Maldars is with us now, one of the partners at Berry Bounty Farms in Chilliwack. Brian, thanks for being here. Thanks so much, so much for having me. Well, first of all, tell me about your farm. All right. We're a smaller family-owned um, and operated farm in Chilliwack um, here, and we are uh, growing uh, raspberries and strawberries. Or, sorry, raspberries and blueberries. And they've got a lot of family members involved in this farm, don't you? We do, yeah. We, we truly are a, a multi-generation. We, we operate the farm three generations, um, uh, grandkids, kids, and parents, and uh uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, it sounds like a lot of fun, too, but you have that many people. Was it always envisioned to be a family farm, Brian, or did it just work out that way? Yeah, that's the way we started it about uh, 10 years ago um, to 12 years ago. We started the farm as a as an operation that was um, kind of uniquely operated just through the family. And uh, that's kind of what's um, probably unique to our farm, uh, to some of the others around us, um, is that uh, we... we, we Generally, our face is the people who do grow and, and raise the, the product, and um, the people enjoy coming out to, to visit the farm and see us as, as, a, as farmers and uh, enjoy the product that we can produce. So, Oh, no kidding, because I had, I had a couple people email me to tell me about your farm. So do you have even the kids working there now? Uh, so it, my my parents are still involved, and um, and then my siblings and their kids. So it's, it's during the harvest season, we probably have about uh, 30 30 family members involved in the harvest. Wow. Wow. That's a lot of people. I guess that helps with the way labor is so tight these days to know that you've got a lot of family you can rely on. 
Absolutely, yeah. But it, and above all that, it's it's just a lot of fun to do. Um, so we look forward to summer. It's coming up to us uh, a little slower this year than other years, but uh, we do have. Well, we look forward to a harvest this year again and uh, inviting people out to our farm in Chilliwack. Okay, tell me about the last year though, because we know that there's been some real up and downs for a lot of farms out there. What's it been like for Berry Bounty Farms? Yes, yeah, so we did. We were quite affected by the heat dome last year in overall yields. The uh, the yield was definitely uh, uh, our crops were definitely affected um, by the heat dome, and uh, but we were able to weather that storm quite well by public support by the uh, consumers coming out to our farm and and buying the products we did have available, and uh, and so that was was super beneficial to us. Uh, we just had a lot of interest and and concern from the from our our consumers and and our customers were out and in. In numbers left, right, and center to to help us uh, move our products. So well, they was, came, they came really through cool. for you. So your customers oh, came yeah. through for you. Absolutely, yeah. How did your how did the the bushes survive then? Like obviously, even growing for this year, that was that challenging because of that the the after effects of the heat dome. Yes, yeah. So we're still dealing with some of that um, today uh, and 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 through this spring, um, especially on the raspberry side. The blueberries were. The, the yield was affected um, by sizing of the fruit, um, but they, the, the blueberries were able to, to come back a little quicker. The raspberries, um, because it's a longer cycle, um, they, they, they're, they're more affected for kind of a two-year cycle. And so we hope to be able to get them the production up again this year for next year's um, yields and, and things. So, But that's kind of a, the raspberries are a little different than the blueberries in that sense. Right, but you are still feeling the effects, though, it sounds like. So, Brian, when can people start buying berries for this season? Well, they're uh, able to visit our website and do ordering right now. Actually, our website's open for, for ordering at berrybountyfarms.com. But uh, we will open our farm hopefully uh, in, in the very beginning of July. Our social media will update everyone when uh, when we are open for business uh, to, to come to our farm and purchase our our, our fruit, but uh, uh, it's we are kind of open um, right now for ordering. We also open uh, year round for for our products. Um, some of our products that we can produce year round um, at our farm store. So we do have a small farm store that people can visit at any any time they wish. Uh, nice. six days a week. So you know what you you said something interesting there too in terms of like Facebook and Instagram and social media. I mean that. That doesn't sound like the farming of ten years ago, does it? So it sounds like you really have to offer much more. Yeah, we we do. Um, we we've we realized that the the contact that we have with people is 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 hugely impacted by um, by social media, and and people really enjoy seeing what's not only going on in the farm during during the harvest season, but also throughout the year um, keeps people interested in in what we're actually doing. So, okay. So what are, what is uh, the Facebook page? What's the Instagram handle? Um, well, just it, it gives people a little bit of a face of what the farm is going through, whether it's, uh, you know, um, it, it shows shows what's actually happening behind the scenes um, throughout the year, um, both Facebook and Instagram. Check them out, Facebook, Instagram, wherever they are. It is Berry Bounty Farms. They've got four generations of family members working on this farm. And as Brian told us, you can already get to uh, ordering your berries that you want from them. They do blueberries 
and raspberries, about 30 acres there. And this is just one of those great local businesses that if you want to connect with them and support uh, a local farm as much as possible, this would be a great place for you to do that. It's Berry Bounty Farms, part of our Keep It Local, our BC Farming Series. This is Mornings with Simi. Just this week alone, you saw Save Old Growth protesters being arrested in Vancouver, in Richmond, and North Saanich. And if you're one of those unlucky people whose daily commute has been disrupted by one of their traffic blockades, well, you've probably wondered about the limits on citizens' right to protest and, and the legal consequences of doing so. Well, our show contributor, Raji Sohal, joins us now for more on that. Good morning, Raji. Hi, Simi. Yeah, so many arrests. Uh, police arrested five protesters in Vancouver alone that uh, those that included four who tried to lock themselves to a steering wheel inside a car on the bridge deck. So you get the sense that tensions are escalating with these traffic blockades and Save Old Growth has promised us that uh, there's going to be more and more of these protest actions. They're going to take place throughout the summer, apparently. And I'm also seeing drivers in some cases are getting more agitated by it. Uh, we're seeing some reports of drivers becoming so enraged that they're yelling at prote- protesters. In some cases, people actually get out of their vehicles. Like this is really, it's getting unsafe. And I think the potential for altercations uh, and escalations is is high. So I wanted to understand, like, what do the protesters themselves face legally? And like, what does it take to even get out there and do what they're doing? Um, I hope to explore this in more depth uh, over the coming weeks. But today I talked to a lawyer, Karen Mursky. She's a Vancouver lawyer who specializes in protest law. And she said, the rights to protest come under Section 2 which are considered fundamental freedoms. And they're generally different types of expressions, uh, but the type that are not protected matters too. So that means that it doesn't entail the right to commit a crime. So often when you hear of a protester at a blockade getting arrested, it's often on a mischief charge. Uh, But if they resist or avoid arrest, then they could also face an obstruction charge on top of that. Here's Karen Mursky. Mm-hmm. And that there is a difference between exercising your right to free expression and actually committing a crime. People protest lawfully uh, in the streets with permits uh, all the time, right? They create art, they create music, um, they engage in a variety of forms of expression that communicate their position, whether it's a cultural or a political position, or just is something meant to advance our society's understanding of an issue, right? The fact that you may be engaging in acts that could be determined to be criminal down the line by a court of law is separate from the fact that you are exercising your right to free expression. Section 64 of the criminal code relates to the criminal act of rioting, which is described as an unlawful assembly that disturbs the peace. So Every protest is not going to be a riot, but a a protest that becomes a riot. So something that disturbs the peace to the extent that um, police make a determination that uh, and crown and eventually a court makes a determination that you are engaging in a riot. um, That's going to be different than a protest. That's going to be different than somebody who, uh, for example, has a permit to march on a certain street at a certain time. Uh, and with the blessing, so be it, uh, of uh, either the police or, or the city, the municipality that they're in. 
And Simi, we haven't so much seen rioting uh, with these Save Old Growth protests on the bridges, but, you know, where we see escalating tension, I wonder if that's going to be something that it evolves into. But very clearly, violence and violent acts, threats, all that kind of stuff, that's not protected type of protest action. And you'd think some of the protesters are aware of this aspect of the law. I'll remind you that uh, the trucker's convoy we uh, had in Ottawa, that did include some aspects which made it illegal. So that would have been anything that was violent, any kind of threats. And, and people gloss over that aspect. But as soon as a protester utters a threat um, and endangers another person, that's that's illegal. And Mursky says that protesters need to think uh, long and hard before taking uh, part in one of these protest actions like blocking a highway because there are legal ramifications. Quite frequently, people are knowingly engaging in this. Like, let's let's be real. If you're going to travel several hours to a to a particular location, um, with uh, the understanding that you are going to be placing yourself in a situation that will prevent somebody from uh, harvesting timber, for example, or from driving across a bridge, um, the likelihood of you being successful in defending a criminal charge or a charge of, an, of a breach of an injunction is quite small, right? What the Crown needs to prove is that you were the person who you were purported to be, so your identity. They need to prove the location of the event uh, offence being in British Columbia. Uh, they need to know that the actions that you did, whether it's sitting in the middle of the bridge or uh, lying in the middle of a logging road, for example, were done intentionally, right? And finally, they need to prove that doing that actually blocked people. It had the effect that you intended it to have. Generally speaking, those who engage in protest acts are doing it with intent. So the question really becomes uh, whether or not they're willing to accept responsibility for that down the line. By and large, they are. They understand that they are putting themselves at risk of a criminal uh, record. They may be putting themselves at risk of jail or a fine or a number of community work service hours. In many people's minds, that is a part of the price they pay because the importance of what they have to say is so critical to them. That's so interesting, Raji, because we've definitely heard that from the Save Old Growth protesters, haven't we? They have been very vocal, at least their organizer has been, about why they're doing this and the fact that they, they know the consequences. Yeah, uh, Zane Hack has been on our show and other CKNW shows talking about that exactly. He said that they'll stop at nothing. Now, in terms of blocking a highway, in terms of blocking a major uh, bridge or any traffic really, when you do that, I, I wonder what the connection is for these protesters about how to raise awareness and whether they think that's the, the most effective way because um, drivers are getting you know, more frustrated than ever. They're becoming enraged when they get stuck in one of these traffic blockades and they're not thinking about old growth forests. They're thinking about how they can't make it to their hospital uh, or doctor's appointment. They can't, they're thinking about how right. they can't make it to work on time. They're not thinking about saving trees. And if anything, it's kind of counterintuitive because uh, you've got cars idling in traffic longer, which is great for our environment. I've wondered about the same thing, too. And even speaking with some of the protesters about that, like, where's the end game here for you? And I guess for them, is it the, the general public, the ones who are being inconvenienced here, the drivers, we're just collateral damage. 
right? They, the target is to put pressure on the government to make the decision by making it such an by making us so angry. I would assume that we would complain enough that the provincial government would have to do something. Like I, that's the only end game I can see. Yeah, I think drivers will just be increasingly frustrated at these protesters. And, uh, you know, I I do worry about uh, these altercations uh, that they go beyond verbal. And I worry about drivers getting out of their cars on on busy highways and on on bridges. I worry about uh, uh, the people losing a connection between the actual issues that matter. You know, uh, saving old growth is something that matters to a lot of people who yes. would connect better on the issue uh, if it weren't for the fact that they were being berated at by someone on a bridge. Exactly. All right, Raji, thank you. Thanks so much, Simi.